And a very good morning to you. We're live from London. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists, Yasmin Abjil, Majid and Nina Dos Santos for joining me in the, the studio to go through the day's main stories. Uh, welcome, Nina. What have you spotted? Thanks very much. Well, I think the big story, uh, obviously, of the week is the fact that it might be the worst kept secret in Washington, but Joe Biden and the White House have capitulated eventually to allow Ukraine to be trained up on these F-16 fighter jets. This is crucial as we wait for that Ukrainian counteroffensive. What have you spotted, Yasmin? So this week is the week that SAG-AFTRA, who are the Actors and Extras Union in the United States, have, uh, for un- in a quite unprecedented way, um, offered a strike authorization vote, which we, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about. Thank you very much indeed for that. We'll be heading to Tokyo, where our bureau chief will join me for the latest on a week when Japan has played host to the G7. Our design editor, Nick Moniz, will give us an update from the Architecture Biennale in Venice. And our editorial director, Tyler Brule, will join me on the line from Bangkok. It's the 21st of May, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome if you've just uh, switched on your radio. I'm delighted to say in the studio today, Nina Dos Santos, former CNN Europe editor and the author Yasmin Abdel-Majid, writer and broadcaster. A very good morning to you. Morning. How is, uh, how's life? What, what have you been up to this weekend, Yasmin? Well, I actually went and saw The Second Woman, the performance of a 24-hour-long piece of theatre. Ruth Wilson was at the Young Vic, and she performed the same sort of seven-minute um, piece, seven-minute scene with a 100 different men and women and non-binary people, um, some famous actors like Ben Whishaw and Andrew Scott, and mostly non-actors. So I watched it for about 10 hours. Okay. Um, it was. I'm going to shake your hand <laughs> for that. Right. I don't know how to do anything like that for 10 hours. Have you been doing anything that's lasted 10 hours long this week, Nina? Oh, yes. I've been reading Empire of Pain, the book by oh. Patrick Rudden Keefe about the opioid um, epidemic and scandal in the United States. And that's uh, definitely taken me uh, more than 10 hours, I would say, and I'm only sort of scratched the surface of it. It's a notoriously deeply researched book. What a serious world we're living in at the moment. (laughs) Hopefully we can lighten this up. Well, well, look, let's go to uh, Bangkok where we can hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who's currently in Bangkok, who's keeping things cool, aren't you, Tyler? How are you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm going to spend 10 hours in uh, the aisles of this grocery store that I'm in right now. I'm at I'm I'm at CM Paragon, having complete supermarket space out uh, right now. In a very good way, I have to say, though. Oh my goodness! I can't tell you how thrilling an international supermarket is. Uh, which aisle are you in? Uh, well, I've actually just uh, since we went on air, I've I'm. Well, I'm sort of in front of the CM South Sea Bird's Nest uh, display at the moment, <laughs> but, but I might, I might drop, uh, I might sort of drop into the assorted uh, Thai sauces in a moment. Okay, that's <laughs> fine. Um, what have you? Uh, well, I mean, is there anything we have to ask you? What are you picking up? Um, because uh, there is always the, the, the Tyler's travels question. I mean, what's coming back in the bags? Well, lots of things are coming back in the bag. Uh, dried garlic, uh, which you think actually dried garlic, very easy to come by in Europe. Actually, not so easy to come by. Um, and the Thais uh, do all kinds of varieties of it. Uh, prawn scented, uh, you, can, you can imagine. Um, a lot of uh, dried mango. And, and then, as, as, you, as you know, we've, we've sort of touched on many times, of course, Thailand is obsessed with Japan, incredibly important 
uh, trading partner, strategically very important. Uh, also, it has the, the largest Japanese community outside of, uh, of Japan in Asia. It used to be Shanghai. Uh, now there's many more Japanese in Bangkok. And so the aisles of the stores are just full of all of these things you, you'd normally find in Tokyo. But the Thais want to sort of, you know, push these things in a very different way. Now, of course, you know, Japan has very hot summers. Just before we went on air, Emma, I sent you a photograph of basically a whole wall of cooling talc. Now, this is, I think, you know, if anyone is listening, is looking for a business opportunity as the world warms up, the Thais and the Japanese have this whole cooling world completely nailed. And so what, Emma, you're going to get, even though the studio is quite cool, um, there's a whole range of different brands that are competing with cooling spray for your shirt. So this is not something that you put on after the wash. This is something that you would probably put on with your deodorant in the morning. You spray it all over your shirt, and as things get warm, it releases sort of a menthol cooling feeling. Oh, so oh. I'm, I'm thinking this. there's going to be a big, big business in this. This, is, this, is, this sounds like heaven. Um, I have the photograph in front of me. I, may I briefly describe what you've, what you've sent me? Um, it's effectively, I think there's what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven rows of cooling tank, talcs, which range in sort of branding from something that looks like um, uh, something that you'd have as a protein drink. I think that's Protex. I'm not entirely sure if it isn't a protein drink. Apolo- apologies. But then we move into the slightly more interesting snake brand for prickly heat. <laughs> 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 and then, and then, you, then we don't just have snake brand. We go to parrot. <laughs> now, now, just tell me, which well, one are you picking for me? You, <laughs> oh, no, listen, you're, you're getting the Sakura, Sakura scented... Uh, prickly heat uh, snake brand. That's that's one you're getting. That's, so there's also there's also they're, they're, this week they're also pushing the kelp version um, as well. So um, I, and, and the, we, well, of course you can't see the well when when you when I deliver. <laughs> and it, the great thing about also it comes in a proper sort of tin can. You know, Protex all of it sort of plasticky. But the amazing thing is these, that you have these talc dispensers, and actually the brand is called the British Dispensary. That's the holding company um, that's churning out all of this talc as well. Oh so um, anyway. So, Sakura scented for you for, uh, for for toasty summers ahead. This is this is all a girl can dream of. Thank you, Tyler. I've got two panelists, <laughs> Yasmin and Nina, who are just looking on with absolute envy. Yeah. Yas- Yasmin's putting her orders. In. How much space have you got, Tyler? Because I think we've got people putting orders in. Yeah, I think. I, I well, I'm, 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 I, I, go on. <laughs> go on, go on, Tyler. Oh, yeah, go on, Tyler. Sorry, sorry. Uh, listen, you know that I, I do travel light, and it's it's a very short trip. It was two two and a half days in Hong Kong. It's two and a half days here, um, so it's uh, it is one small case. But listen, you know, I'm sure if I go over to aisle seventy five, um, they're going to have expandable luggage as well, so it won't it won't be a problem. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Can I just politely ask that you don't put my talc next to the prawn scented dried garlic? Now, well, no, listen, I mean, everything's overpowered in the store right now because it's durian season as well. So I'm surprised if you actually swung open the studio door, you could smell the durians, I'm sure, all the way over in London. Um, it's quite pungent at the front of this uh, at the front of this grocery store right now. Um, can I ask you, for every single check-in in the future, can you do it from a supermarket, please? This is brilliant fun. <laughs> endless, endless <laughs> array of choice and things to talk about. Trust me. All right. Tell us um, other, st- other stuff you want to raise. Otherwise, I'm just going to go aisle by aisle until we run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, just one observation, though. I-, I was in Mexico City last week. I came across, we could have actually done a call in from there because I discovered City Market in Mexico City, also fantastic grocery store chain. But you're in Thailand, and we have to sort of remember as well, because, you know, and there's probably a reason why the Thais, the central group, have been buying up so many department stores all over Europe. It's because they, they know how to do a bloody good food hall. 
You could argue that the European department stores are the ones who invented it, but the Thais have completely reinvented it. They've taken the best of Japan. Uh, they've, they've certainly taken you know, the best of, of Europe, and now they're running circles around everybody. I'm quite sure I probably saw you know, at least two or three groups of, of they, they were clearly from uh, Western grocery stores. That could have been back in aisle 62, uh, of people taking photographs who are, who are definitely having and eyes to what you know what this market is doing when it comes to retail food innovation. It's it's good to see because actually, our Central Group have now acquired Selfridges on on London's uh, Oxford Street, and it it has beautiful brands in it, but it does feel a little bit of it, as if it's cramped in a corner. I mean, the the fact is that the, a beautiful food hall can actually totally transform a shop, can't it? It can. And I, I the rumor has it that. The whole basement of Selfridges is going to is going to go, and uh, and it is their ambition to to turn at least a big a big portion, if not all, of the basement of that Selfridges into the best well one of the best food halls in, in Europe for sure. Um, and because that's that's what they you know, as you said, it's kind of it's always been a bit cramped and strange at Selfridges in London. It's always needed a bit more real estate, and it looks like it's going to to get it. And that is obviously a big feature of what, of what Central Group is doing. If you jump to Berlin, um, complete overhaul of the, the top floor of, of KDV uh, as well. They picked up also Globus in Switzerland, which already has um, great food halls, but they're also pushing it, um, you know, pushing it further as well. But I'm in the competitive group right now. This is uh, CM Paragon, and they're completely uh, you know, a massive competitor. But I, I did come to the store today because everyone said Central doing a great job, but actually CM Paragon is doing it even better. And... I'd have to agree. What are they doing that, that's, that's stealing the march on Central? Well, they don't have a display like uh, Pandan Instant Herbal Drink uh, <laughs> <laughs> front and centre, um, which is um, yeah, which is competing with the, the, wrong, the rum wong tamarind instant juice as well. So uh, <laughs> that's one thing that's going on here. Goodness me, I'm, so, I'm delighted to hear it. You're going to have to get that bag because uh, I can just see that Selfridges is going to be quaking in its boots. Well, Central should be quaking in their boots, realising that they've got, obviously, Rina Shente is ripe for, ripe for redevelopment so that this, this hits the spot. Um, Thailand is really super ambitious at the moment, isn't it? Because, you, you know, as you say, we've got Central hoovering up all the main huge um, luxury department stores in Europe. But in Bangkok itself, enormous development going on. Huge. I mean, uh, two two projects right now. One called One Bangkok, rather ambitiously, uh, which is one of the biggest, uh, yeah, you could say one of the biggest mixed-use developments in Southeast Asia. Then right around the corner, Dusit, of course, one of the big uh, hotel groups out of the region, also doing a massive, massive overhaul. But it's just interesting to see part of it, of course, driven by hospitality, um, all with you know hotels attached to them. But then also what is just happening with with mixed-use um, as well. Um, you know, I was just with some developers earlier this morning. They're very confident about, uh, you know, a world of offices and very, very busy offices. And I do have to say, actually, they, you know, and we've talked about this many times, uh, you know, I think much of the whole work, work from home movement is very much an, an Anglosphere invention because, um, you know, offices are packed in Thailand. Uh, Tyler, any more you want to say apart from advice as to how, how to keep cool when it's 40 Celsius? Well, um, I think you only have to talk to the people from Snake Brand and, and anything that they've got for prickly heat. Uh, you're completely uh, sorted out. Late-breaking news, actually, um, as well, out of the grocery store. I'm in the snack aisle now. Thank you. There's huge, huge claims right now, which is... And you would have thought this would have been, you know, maybe invented a while ago, but um, coconut-covered peanuts. 
And so this, this company is making claims that they are the world's first who've done coconut-covered peanuts. Okay, who that's knew? double nuts. We love it. Thank you so much, Tyler. And uh, we'll leave you with your shopping trolley uh, in the supermarket there in Bangkok. That was our editorial director and uh, new sort of ma- mass market retail correspondent, Tyler Brillet, on the line from Thailand. Um, right. I mean, obviously, you we have a panel, a panel here this morning of wide travellers. There is nothing better than an international supermarket, is there? I was just thinking that as we were listening to Tyler and and also that idea of like what snacks different people have in different countries. Like what are the sort of things that people latch onto? Or when I I remember um, moving, when I lived in Paris briefly, Paris is maybe not super exotic, but for me it was very exotic and, and just understanding that the boulangerie was a place where you got baguettes and everyone got one you know, at the beginning of every day and maybe at the end of every day, but it's also the place, the best place for lunch. So you could get a quiche or a sandwich and in the way that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily go to a bakery in London for your lunch, but it was like the place to go. Now, this is not supermarkets because I was very confused in the French supermarket and even better, I've got a, when I went to Lithuania, I spent an about, you know, a good 20 minutes, half an hour in the pickled fish aisle. Oh, yeah. Um, we've done that in Lithuania. Lithuania. Yeah. Lithuania. Yeah. Pickled fish. <laughs> Such a big thing. Oh, great. So delicious. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Nina? <laughs> well, no, I've, I've been to Lithuania many times for work uh, and also spent a lot of time in Paris growing up because uh, I was educated in French. But my favourite out of all of the ones you've mentioned is Selfridges, which was my local because I grew up a stone's throw away from here in Midori House in one of the square gardens nearby and I think food and your memories of food halls particularly in that era of the 80s and 90s is quite formative I'll never forget my mother used to take us often for sort of salt beef and pastrami sandwiches Mm. in Selfridges food hall when it was bedecked with all this sort of white marble that now might look a bit dated and Tyler was saying you know there's there's uh, assumptions that Selfridges is going to have a big food themed revamp in his basement floor but those are memories that I have that are still seared upon my mind. It's sweet because I now take my 11-year-old son down to Selfridges to Yo Sushi because they're the only place that still has the conveyor belt. There and I go. mean, there's oh. nothing more fun when you're 11, it's actually true. when you're my age as well, <laughs> to have food that moves. It's absolutely great. I also remember the moment when my heart shattered when I saw a triangular prepackaged sandwich in a French supermarket. And I thought, oh, oh my God, this is the end of civilization. Mm-hmm. This is dreadful. Mm-hmm. So the things that I normally bring back in my bags, so we, we ask what we will bring. I always bring like French fabric conditioner because oh, it's really nice. It's really nice. It's really yeah. nice. It yeah, has a nice yeah, smell. Yeah. And what else? Quite, I'm quite good on um, Austrian shower gels as well. They have a real sort of medicinal, slightly efficient sense to them. Which So if you feel like a brisk wash after a run or something, <laughs> the, Austrians, the, the Austrians do <laughs> it better than anyone. Sorted. This is what was so heartbreaking about Brexit because you couldn't yeah. order your brisk Austrian shower gel wash off the internet anymore. You actually had to sort of like go to the place and, and beg. What do you normally bring back on, in, in bags? Well, so my family from Sudan and we would go to Sudan every two years and every two years we would get stopped um, flying back into Australia the quarantine because of course the Australian sort of border customs quarantine line is very very strict you can't even bring an apple and you know and here we were bringing all sorts of <laughs> gungules and a bre- all these like you know seeds and things that were very much shouldn't be entering but was so delicious and you couldn't find them anywhere outside the Sahara um, so that I would even as a child try to I remember I had um, brought these two little uh, like drums made out of mud and like stretched goat skin and I had carried them in my hand as a 10 year old like on this 30 hour flight and then I get to the border and they're like no sorry we're gonna we're gonna have to take these I mean they were like you we you could pay $180 to get them treated 
but they're likely not to last. And I was like, as a 10-year-old, just my, my, you know, crying, being like, I've carried these. They're so fragile. They were like, well, you know, they're likely to bring something into the country that would, you know, ruin the, the natural ecosystem. And so that's, that's, that doesn't matter when you're yeah, 10 you know, when you're yesterday. 10 and you want to play the little goat drum. So that's that's my experience. Mm. You see, I, I wouldn't want to be an, an Australian customs no. person, just like no, no, opening no. the bag and go, what's in here? I think, yeah, I mean, um, there are TV shows based on the Australians. <laughs> Very successful ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I must confess, um, uh, quite a lot of pig and cheese has been brought back in my bags from, from travels. <laughs> cheese travels so well, doesn't Delicious. it? Delicious. How about you? What have you secreted back in bags? Oh, my goodness. I'll never forget the time when I was travelling back from the south of France with a, a colleague of mine. In fact, funnily enough, we'd been shooting a feature film in Monaco, of all glamorous places, and we got stuck. Our plane got delayed in Nice Airport, as is often the case. Um And so the only place to buy anything was the cheese shop, which is what we duly did. And uh, it was the one time I pulled rank on a producer because I'm not usually uh, used to, you know, bashing my ego around. And I said, can you hold my cheese, please? (laughs) The plane got delayed. And I remember after a while we had people coming up to us saying, you stunk out the entire plane. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, You owe us a drink. Because it is one of those things. that uh, Nice Airport does really good refrigerated, very smelly cheese. But after 15, 20 minutes on a plane, this is not going to no, work. No, that's right. <laughs> a hot plane. Oof. Don't think I've ever done it again. No, you Take it do. by car. That's my advice. <laughs> so you can if you can it. cope with it. If you can bear it. Yeah. 18 hours of a sort of, I don't know, a banal, sort of doing its own thing in its figure. A Mont d'Or is probably oh the best. Goodness me. All right. Never travel. If you know what Nina dos Santos looks like and you're near her on a plane, move. <laughs> right. Let's move to the serious issues of the day, although I think we could probably talk about supermarkets forever. Um, Nina, what have you spotted in the in, in the papers? I know you mentioned at the beginning of the of the beginning of the programme you wanted to talk about Ukraine because this is the moment when arguably Volodymyr Zelensky pulled not one but two absolute blinders when it came to hijacking the world's news agenda and geopolit- geopolitics news agenda. I mean, when he touched down in Japan, I think we kind of knew that he was going to make an appearance at the, the G7. But when he touched down in Jeddah to wave a very good afternoon to the Arab League, I mean, I think we, our jaws hit the floor. It was astonishing. Yes, it's quite hard to keep up with Volodymyr Zelensky, isn't he? <laughs> he seems to be the most... Um, um, understandably energetic person on the international uh, scene at the moment because the stakes are so high for his country, obviously. And um, he's shown great bravery and so is his country as a whole in trying to stave off Russian aggression. But to get on a plane to all of these different places amid extremely difficult security considerations that they have to uh, account for um, and to essentially try and knock heads together. What he's trying to do on the one hand is trying to get those non-aligned states like, for instance, India and then the UAE to stop helping Russia uh, with by buying oil, perhaps, you know, um, in some cases, some countries helping Russia with uh, technology and parts that the West is trying desperately to try and uh, starve Russia of so that they can sort of um, wane the support for this war in Ukraine. Um, And he's been quite brave and successful in that. But really, the coup was to get the United States to agree to allow Ukrainian pilots to be trained on the F-16 fighter jets. This is something that Ukraine has been lobbying for for many, many months and increasingly aggressively publicly with the help of allies like, for instance, the United Kingdom. And what it's done is 
the fact that we've had this U-turn in Washington is it showed that essentially there's no limits to Western support for Ukraine. There's a real uh, crystallization now of the idea that Ukraine is the border at which Russian aggression has to be stopped because otherwise it'll open the door for other autocrats anonymous in other parts of the world to take over their neighboring states too. There was a fear, uh, there was something in the newspapers this week where someone said they've got a year to make sure that Ukraine wins the war against Russia because after a year, in a year's time, the world will be done with listening. And, and we have this moment this week, don't we, where, where Zelensky is absolutely front and centre of every agenda and he's he's done it. He's captured our imagination and he's captured our, our, our will and he's captured the American support as well. One just wonders how long this is going to last. Yeah, I think it's very impressive also just to think of what he's been able to do in this sort of diplomatic mission to get the West support, Western support for Ukraine. Because you know, when he visited the UK, I think Boris Johnson was still prime minister at the time and he was you know, he had this massive um, address and he was talking about getting jets at that point. And so he's been doing this for a number of months, as Nina mentioned. And, and he's been able to make it happen. And I'm not sure that people expected that he would be able to, to get sort of air support or at least the training for the Ukrainians. Um, and I, I just sort of observing and also being in my position as a, as a Sudanese person and, and thinking about the the failure of political leadership and the failure of ceasefires and, and, and so on and looking at Zelensky and thinking how how has he, you know, what's his training been in being able to corral these politicians to get them to align in a way? I mean, yes, obviously there's the geopolitical stuff, but also he's getting these leaders to to support him in a in a way that it, it's it's actually very politically savvy or maybe I, I was I guess my armchair psychology is, is it because he was an actor beforehand and he sort of has a relationship with an audience in this way he's clearly incredibly good at, at, at uh, corralling audiences I mean let's just look at what he said to the G7 today he said Kiev's plans to end Russia's war in Ukraine is an obvious expression of rationality. He's not right. talking about heartstrings and humanity and this kind of other. He's saying, you are cool-headed leaders here. You know what you're talking about. So let's take the rational path. And you just think that's absolutely devastating, isn't it? Well, I think the rationale, the rationale has changed throughout the course of the Ukraine war, hasn't it? At first, remember, the United States was loath to give any weaponry, really, to Kyiv, any lethal weaponry, lest it fall into either Russian hands or be used on Russian soil. Um, they didn't want to stoke the Russian bear, if you like, to run the risk of tactical nuclear weapons being deployed. But I think we've seen that strategy eroded over the course of the last few months, haven't we? Because eventually Bradley fighting vehicles were sent over. Then we heard that uh, Washington wouldn't supply tanks, but yes, eventually they would, Patriot missiles and so on and so forth. Um, so I think the strategy has changed. I think what's different now is that we know, as you pointed out, yes, I mean, there's a sort of time frame here as well that they have to consider. We're now in May and there's climactic considerations that come into play too. We're in May, the ground is less slushy, uh, the snow has thawed. We're waiting for this Ukrainian counteroffensive. Whether or not Bakhmut has been taken by the Wagner military group, mercenary group as they claim, um, some people dispute that claim, not least Ukraine, is in, is in the, the offing. The thing is, is they need the help now. Otherwise, they'll lose the window of opportunity. And I think that's also part of the rationale. And they're juxtaposing it with the non-rational behaviour by Russia, of course. The issue that we also have, though, is while militarily it appears that 
Ukraine is garnering support. This week we had the extension of the uh, Black Sea Grain Agreement, which allowed Ukrainian grain to be ferried away from Ukraine and to feed an incredibly hungry world. And when you looked at the likes of the Arab League and you thought actually leaders from Egypt are there, they are in so dependent on this kind of grain. And it's the Russians who are holding all the cards here. Yeah, it's um, as you were speaking about the grain, I was just thinking, I mean, again, and not to bring this back to Sudan, which is just my personal perspective, but, you know, half um, the population of Sudan is in need of humanitarian support and and famine and starvation is, is a real threat. And obviously we've got a lot of the East Coast, you know, Ethiopia and so on. And, and Egypt as well, that's been seeing a lot of inflation, sort of mass inflation over the past few months. The, the sorts of concerns that when we think about Ukraine in relation to Europe, that's obviously one angle, but the fact that Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world so far away and, and the impacts that that they then has in terms of stability, political and otherwise in terms of migration movements and so on. Um, to your point, Nina, about the timing and this this sort of like spring-summer moment that we have and whether or not, you know, the fighter jets are going to be, you're going to be able to train people fast yeah. enough to get the fighter jets in um, before winter, before autumn and winter again. I'm... I think it's I think that there is a lot of there are many, many eyes on Ukraine, not just sort of in Europe, but in the Arab League. And I also did read an interesting piece in the Arab News about um, Arab leaders looking at Ukraine, looking at their ability to get air support, looking at the Patriot um, missile support system and so on and being like, how can we learn from Ukraine when we've got Iran on our doorstep and so on, which I just thought was very interesting because it isn't just uh, because they are looking at Zelensky as an example of the kind of leader that they want to be. And it's been a bad week for Vladimir Putin as well. If you have your alliances in, mm-hmm. in you know, in the Arab world, and suddenly you have Volodymyr Zelensky hijacking the the, the summit, you you could, you know, if you sort of if you're sitting in Saudi, if you're sitting in Iran, you're going to think this isn't this isn't good. Well, and also I think uh, there were meetings in Central Asia with China and the leaders of Central Asia there who are being courted increasingly by the East and not by the Kremlin. They're losing their allegiances with the Kremlin to a certain extent and also some of their economic um, levers that the Kremlin can pull. So yes, it's it's coming on both sides, both east and west. And that becomes a sort of a battle for Africa, for the global mm. south at that point, doesn't it? Because you have Russia with its influence in Africa with grain. I think it was earlier on this, this year that Vladimir Putin said, OK, if the Black Sea grain deal doesn't happen, then we will send to all the countries in Africa that need the grain free of charge. And you just think, my goodness, that's a heck of a promise, but an irresistible one to a, to a country if you're trying to feed your people. But also then you have the, sort of the, the growing influence of China as well, you know, targeting everybody who's listening. Yeah, that's true. But I just wonder, with this uh, pledge by Vladimir Putin, how, for instance, he would do that. So we have this interesting dynamic, don't we, in terms of the sort of machinations of power with the Kremlin, because we've got an increasingly vocal head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, in outright sort of verbal open warfare with the Russian Ministry of Defence. And Vladimir Putin hasn't made many comments about this, but we don't really understand the power dynamic inside the Kremlin, not least because there's very few independent news sources uh, that we can glean any information from. So if you were to, say, make this, whether or not it's an empty pledge or not, to feed parts of Africa that are starving with this grain, how would he deliver that? The Wagner Group does have boots on the ground, not least in places like Sudan. Sudan. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
So, so that is a question. Is it an empty promise? Is it, is it another way in which the Wagner Group can economically benefit from this destabilization that Russia has created around the world? Um, let's move on to Sudan. There's been some um, movement in the last 24 hours, hasn't there? Brokered by the US and the Saudis. That makes it complicated. Um, <laughs> and the and the, the fact is that there is, in theory, a seven-day ceasefire likely to be introduced on Monday. Is that right? Yes. So off the back, very recently, there was the uh, Jeddah talks where there was meant to be a short ceasefire. Of, and like many of the previous ceasefires, that didn't hold. But re- very recently, so late Saturday night, another announcement was made about a seven-day ceasefire to begin 48 hours after the agreement was signed, um, mainly to allow humanitarian assistance to come through. Because as folks might be aware, um, the conflicts between the two, mainly between the two generals, um, began on April the 15th and has been going for almost, you know, over a month now and mostly focused in Khartoum and also in the West in Darfur. Um, and that just the ability of, for humanitarian assistance to get into the country has been incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, there has, you know, people, Different organizations have been trying to get in, you know, MSF and and various, even, you know, the Norwegian Refugee Council and so on. However, um, as mentioned, half the the population, half the 45 million population is in need of humanitarian assistance. Um, I think the number was 3 billion, um, the United Nations number was 3 billion required sort of immediately. And so this seven-day ceasefire is... I'm torn, Emma, because I think on one on one hand it's fantastic to to hear, but on the other hand, frankly, none of the ceasefires have been respected, and this is this is a major concern. Now, one positive is that you know part of the reason the ceasefires haven't reportedly haven't been respected was because each side wanted didn't want to give the other side the opportunity to sort of um, gain more ground during during the ceasefire. But they've sort of said that this will freeze, and the US said that there will be some sort of monitoring mechanism. We don't know what sort of monitoring mechanism there will be because there are very few sort of boots on the ground from outside. Um, But I guess from the international perspective, at the very least, there is this statement around a ceasefire. Let's see if that means that proper humanitarian assistance can get through because over a million people have been displaced and it's really, it's it's not looking positive. Just explain to us what daily life is like in in Sudan at the moment from what you're hearing. I mean, so if you're in Khartoum, um, you are still experiencing daily artillery, daily sort of shelling. And, and you know, the, the anything that's coming from the sky is coming from the army. Anything that's kind of on the ground is from the um, rapid support forces, which are Hemeti, the sort of the, the paramilitary militia. Um, many, many, many uh, houses have been looted because the militia are sort of going in, um, taking, un- unfortunately, the sort of war crimes that we hear about. There are there are stories of rapes and, and all sorts of things like that. Power is very difficult. Water is very difficult. They sort of come in and out. Um, if you're in the West, if you're in Darfur, uh, I mean, many markets have been burned. It's sort of, unfortunately... It is proper all-out warfare, and, and and especially for it to be in Khartoum, for this to have come to Khartoum. I mean, what we're seeing is that the the entire city is the 
Hemeti, who's the head of the paramilitary, um, a number of years ago during the revolution said that, you know, if we were to fight, we will we will empty the city out. This Khartoum will be like a ghost town. And that's essentially what you're, you're seeing happen. And of course, the difficulty that we're experiencing here is that there is very little reporting from inside yeah. the country. There is very. And th- this is, um, again, one of the real challenges is most of the reporting that we're getting is from civilians. Um, most of the diplomats have left. Um, many embassies have closed. I mean, just on a bit of an aside, many people, many Sudanese people had their passports trapped in various embassies. You know, it was reported that the French embassy shredded people's passports. So even if they were trying to leave, um, they couldn't because they had been applying for a visa and and, and the embassy sort of fled um, and, and didn't give their passports back. And so because of this lack of, um, I mean, at the, I think it's positive that the internet isn't fully uh, cut off, which we've seen happen in number of times in the past. However, even um, because of the lack of power and because of the sort of patchiness of services, just getting information and reputable information from the ground is incredibly challenging. And I'll just add one more thing. There were, there was a list of journalists that came out um, that were being specifically targeted. And so this is also another real challenge. This is really hard to keep in the news agenda then, isn't it? I'm glad you mentioned that. That was what I was going to come to. It's really tragic, isn't it? This is Africa's third largest country. There's huge huge amounts at stake here. It's a crucial player Mm. in the Arab world and the Muslim world. Um, And also it's a country that's been repeatedly targeted by foreign influential forces over the years. In fact, lots of diplomats around the world have acknowledged now that, you know, the international community has failed in trying to sort out the problems that help Sudan sort out the types of problems that it was facing with, for instance, the Janjaweed and Darfur, as you mentioned before, uh, 10, 15 years or so ago. And the West is paying the price in Sudan ultimately, tragically, is paying the price because 750 people have lost their lives and thousands are injured. And yet, six weeks into this conflict, it's fallen off the news agenda until today when finally there was a ceasefire and then everybody's sort of thinking, will that hold? And as you were pointing out, Emma, it is difficult because uh, these these conflicts are becoming increasingly difficult for news companies to cover because we know that journalists now around the world, including in places like Ukraine, uh, by Russian forces are being targeted. And um, I mean, the most stark example of that was uh, 10, more than 10 years ago when Marie Colvin of the Sunday Times mm. was deliberately targeted by Bashar al-Assad's uh, forces. And now we've had Assad rehabilitated mm. on the mm-hmm. international, on the at least the Arab mm-hmm. um league stage uh, when he famously went to Saudi Arabia for this big conference in the last few days, ostensibly to try and get money to rebuild his own country after everything that's happened over the last 10 years. Which, of course, the the richer members of the Arab League are going to love because they know that they have billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of investment just sitting and waiting. But also, it's that message, isn't it, to every single despot on earth you sit it out, you wait right. long enough, you allow your country to pay the ultimate price and allow your citizens to, to be slaughtered. But look, patience wins. We'll let you back in. And I mean, there was such anger I saw from Syrians about, you know, this letting um, Bashar al-Assad back into the fold. And and, I, and it is terrifying. I mean, I think, you know, looking at the Sudanese context, this is a situation which... Um, isn't the same as Syria, but is comparable in that it could be intractable, in that it could have 
you know, massive repercussions for the region in that you could see millions of people leave the country, migrate legally or otherwise, um, and then to turn around and have the leader rehabilitated and, and not pay any consequences and not be held accountable. The question, I think, on a lot of people's minds in the region is, well, then what are we meant to do? How do we hold our leaders accountable? How do we actually get sustainable change? What does a, a transition to civilian democracy look like? if we will just sort of be shelled and bombed by our own leader and then, you know, give it a decade and, and it'll all be fine. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. We'll have more from Nina Dos Santos and Yasmin Abdelmajid in just a few moments' time. And in a second, we go to Venice. Monocle's May issue includes our annual design awards, where we scour the globe for the best in architecture, furniture, branding and more. We've handpicked the sunniest and most ambitious creations that have caught our eye, from office buildings alive with greenery to slick seating built from recycled materials. Elsewhere, we see why global entrepreneurs have been flocking to Mexico City and putting down roots. We also meet the man breaking down artistic barriers in Tasmania and deep dive into Copenhagen's booming fashion scene, which is driving a wave of creativity and good business. And, as always, you'll find our regular roundup of hospitality hotspots and travel tips to pack plenty of inspiration. Order your copy of Monocle's May issue today or subscribe to get instant access online. Now on Monocle on Sunday, it's time to uh, cross to Venice, where Nick Manise, our design editor, is having an absolutely difficult job beyond imaginable. Um, Nick, you're doing the uh, Venice Biennale there, the architecture Biennale. How are you coping, my dear man? I am. I'm holding up. I've had a few waters this morning, um, you know, just all about sort of recovering and recouping and and sort of keeping my energy levels high. Uh, I've got an afternoon flight, so a few more things to see. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through it, Emma. I'm so pleased you, you took the time out to join us. Um, tell us what, what you've been up to. Uh, a lot of eating um, and I guess seeing some architecture in between that. Uh, but I mean, I mean, this is this is really, I guess, the biggest gathering of architects in the world. Uh, it, it, it's <laughs> it's almost like because I'm always comparing it to the Salona del Mobile, which is the, sort of the biggest furniture fair in the world, which is a lot more trade and industry focused and and really about you know, I guess, selling chairs and tables and, and discussing the future of furniture. Uh, whereas the architecture Biennale is really a, a lot more nerdy. It's, it's, it's a lot more focused on how we can build better, how we need to change dialogues around architecture, around the built environment. What are some of the ideas that we should be pushing? It's, it's very much research focused and, and forward looking, uh, you know, certainly with some, some built projects on display, but really, really looking, I guess, at, at, at the future. And what are the big fo- big focuses this year? I mean, we, we spoke a little bit on The Globalist on, on Friday where I was a little bit fresher, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, I, I briefly thought it was Saturday morning this morning, but it's definitely Sunday. I'm definitely on Monocle on Sunday. Um, but, I mean, a, a big focus has been how, how we use materials and how, um, you know, how we, how we can build better, how we can maybe make 
bricks out of you know clay sediment dredged up from the from the canals of Venice or you know structural beams out of reconstituted plastic. Uh, but if if we want to talk about you know more than that, certainly there, there's been a, a focus on housing. I saw a, a great exhibition or a great display on reconceptualizing urban housing, and um, you know it, it was architects' actual built works alongside proposed works that they were working on. So you kind of had this really nice contrast between what people had done and what people were planning on doing. Manuel Gautran, this brilliant French architect, had uh, you know a, a completed project, Edison Light, which is in Paris, and that was uh, all about bringing greenery and, and density into the city in a, a really beautiful way, a really soulful way. Uh, and she was looking at the lessons she learned from that compared to Foley Mangura, which is another building she's working on in Montpellier, um, and, and, and looking at the, I guess, comparing and contrast between what you know you've done in the past and what you're looking to do in the future what are the lessons you've learned what are the plant selections that you could have made better in that instance uh you know where where can we reconfigure balconies to give people more outdoor space uh so that that's certainly another big theme and then obviously it's it's kind of hard to avoid the laboratory of the future theme as a whole, which is what the curator of the Venice Biennale, Leslie Locco, has, has set as, as an agenda for the event. And, uh, you know, it's really looking at, at using Africa as as a, a place of learning. Like it, it's, it's a place uh, or, or a continent that certainly has some of the most pronounced challenges that, uh, you know, architects uh, or people have more broadly. Uh, and again, we talked a little bit about this on Friday, but it's the, you know, geopolitical issues that they face, the the environmental challenges they've got. You've got global warming particularly pronounced there. And and the African representation, I think something like, you know, nearly half of the 89 participants are from the continent. Uh, and, and them bringing their lessons here to share with us is, is really significant. The work of Mariam Isafu-Kamara was on display. Monocle spoke to her uh, on, on Friday Friday morning. I spoke to her and then Stella Ruse, our design correspondent, happened to dip through as well. And we we're having a lovely conversation with her about her work and how she, uh, you know, you're, you're forced to kind of work with the environment in Africa because you're not you're not relying on, you know, a a stable energy grid. Uh, And what are the lessons that we can learn from that and apply it to perhaps more, you know, developed and and Western contexts? Like we could certainly learn a lot from the way that they build in Africa to the way that we we build in Europe. Indeed, it's it's bringing this brand new fresh approach isn't it when you have such a huge influence from 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 africa which is and i think only one of the permanent um pavilions is is from the african continent continent which is egypt so when you have someone saying hang on let's take our focus and really hone in on on an area what what's the effect on everybody else i mean what what have people has it been people been reacting to this I mean, I think it feels it feels very fresh. Obviously, there's there's been African representation at the Biennale for a long time. Uh, in in the general exhibition, like you said, Egypt's the only uh, African country with its own national pavilion. But to to have it, I guess, in this force and in in this number, it, it really shows the the very perspectives on the built in environment that are out there. And I think equally for these these architects who perhaps feel like their voice hasn't been heard as much, this they've, we've certainly got a lot to learn from them to have their voice. I guess front and center and more prominent is is really really also it, it's it's beneficial for the broader community, but it's also very special for them. I was, I was chatting to Theasta Gates, a brilliant designer from Chicago, um, of of is uh, African American, and he was he was talking uh, about you know just how how beautiful it is to see all these people that he's worked with that 
perhaps have been maybe, you know, on the fringes a little bit, being brought in front and centre. Certainly Leslie Locko. I mean, if you know architecture, you know her, but she's probably not been a household name. And that's certainly about to shift. You look at Francis Kerry as well. He won the Pritzker Prize a few years ago. That certainly shifted. I bumped into him in the, in the gardens of Giardini, and it was amazing to see this this young Angolan architect uh, sort of ran up to him when I was talking to him and said, hey, I'm, I'm from Angola. You're, the fact that, you know, you're from Burkina Faso and you've reached the pinnacle of architecture winning the Pritzker Prize means so much to me and it's so inspiring to me. So seeing those sorts of things and really, I guess, broadening the discussion uh, of the built environment to the whole world is, is really, really special. Now, the most important thing is, is it obviously you've, you've drawn our attention to the fact that you haven't just been looking at architecture. You've been eating and drinking a little, Nick. So tell us, uh, what, what, what adventures have you had? Well, Emma, you have to be social. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, and I, I just, maybe I'm just trying to emphasize this for when I put my expenses through, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the biggest gathering of architects in, in the world, really. So this is a chance to sort of connect and, and, and talk to people about the practice that they're doing. So I went to, uh, you know, and obviously that, you know, involves food in Italy. So I went to uh, an amazing party last night at the Natelli Airport, uh, which is on the island of Lido. That was, for the Italian pavilion um, and uh, you know we had some lovely canapes come through uh, oh, sorry I'm not quite sure actually Italian word for it but beautiful finger food come through this uh, you know 1930s building that's just been uh, re- refurbished and it's got the wares of Nilifer Gallery in there uh, you know and, and mixing with some great photographers some great uh, you know uh, design brands as well uh, I think uh, though for me was I had and, it, and it's in the monocle guide which is where I where I found it um, I had a quiet dinner at a little place called Osteria de Tony, uh, just on a canal in the quiet uh, southwest corner of uh, of Venice, and that for me was really special. I had some uh, black squid ink uh, pasta, uh, just a very simple caprese salad, and that, that was me just just sitting alone on the canal, soaking it in. Nick Moniz, soaking it all in for us. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Let's cross now for the latest from Tokyo. I'm glad to say I'm joined by our Bureau Chief and Senior Asia Editor, Fiona Wilson. Uh, Fiona, I'm lying. You're not in Tokyo, are you? You're in a side street in Ginza. <laughs> well, You're in Tokyo. I, no, I am I am in Tokyo, but I, um, I went to a festival earlier and um, I may, almost made it home. It was so exciting, this festival. I'm now in Ginza, so you might hear the sounds of... Uh, Tokyo streets behind that's, me. But, that's brilliant. Um, no, all good. I didn't think, I think you were out of Tokyo. We're, we're glad to have you wherever you are because I know that you've just jumped off a train to do this specifically for this and we are immensely grateful for this. Um, listen, before we, we get into the big uh, meat and drink of the of, of the week's events uh, at the G7 in Hiroshima, um, it has been uh, brought to our attention by our editorial director, Tyler Brule, that international supermarkets are rather fun. And um, he's been telling us what he's been finding in Bangkok supermarkets, which generally involve uh, cooling talc that's the big thing where he is um, we had to ask you what's the big thing in J- Japanese supermarkets at the moment what what are people what what are the crazy snacks that, that's what Yasmin yeah, Gress wants yeah, to know well, great question I mean the thing about Japanese shoppers is they love novelty so what Japanese supermarkets have to do is keep offering them new things so I noticed, and it's a real sign of the seasons changing, as it gets hot, they start offering everything with mint in. So everything starts switching to products with chocolate with mint. You, know, you see that. So this is what they're really doing. And they think, um, you know, you have to keep everyone interested. They try, you know, 
if you go in on the 29th, that the, and in Japanese that's niku, that's the shop, which is the same as the sort of play on the word for meat, you get discounted meat. So they're always trying to keep shoppers interested, you know, find something new for them. But um, at the moment, yeah, the snack offering is always good. I mean, you just have to go into a Japanese convenience store, never mind a supermarket. And it's, uh, yeah, it's looking very minty at the moment. What's going in the Wilson shopping trolley then this week? you know what i'm a big one for seasonal fruit so i discovered at the moment that it's sort of seasons weirdly it's almost the end of the strawberry season in japan now this is counterintuitive if you're from the uk you're thinking about summer strawberries but in japan the that it's it's really a winter fruit you know it's actually really associated with christmas so we're kind of at the end of that season so i'm looking to get the end of those i am i'm also i'm missing the citrus fruits they've just finished so we move into the next season with, uh, you know, we keep it very seasonal in Japan. That's the way we like it. You've just majorly messed with this British woman's head with Christmas <laughs> strawberries. I'm not sure I'm ever <laughs> going to get over that. Um, Fiona, let's move to the big news of the week where you are, not in your side street in Ginza, but in Hiroshima, where the leaders of the G7 um, turned up ostensibly to talk about China and Ukraine and ended up being visited by Volodymyr Zelensky. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, Zelensky's appearance in person, which I think had been talked about privately. No one knew if it was really going to come off. And then, you know, suddenly it was announced he was just going to speak online and then he appeared. Um, and it really has dominated uh, the uh, the whole uh, event. And he's talked to all the leaders. You know, he, it, it's been an incredible, um, you know, event for him, I think, particularly. Um, Prime Minister Kishida just, just wrapped up the... the, the uh, the event by saying, you know, I think for him, the big message is about peace. You know, we're in Hiroshima, a city that, you know, the first atomic bomb. And and he said, you know, just remember, there can never be a winner from a, a, a nuclear war. So I think that also relates to uh, Ukraine as well. So, yeah, I think Zelensky's appearance, uh, you know, it turned the whole event. I think initially there was a quite a big agenda. Obviously, there was going to be climate change, environmental issues. They were all discussed. But then, in fact, what happened was, you know, Ukraine just um, really became top, top of the agenda. So, Tell so me, that, that's really the... If you had sorry. been uh, Fumio Kishida's planning team and, and had wanted to say, OK, this is Japan's moment. Um, we're going to entertain, impress, show off what the brilliant things that Japan can talk about. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do this in Hiroshima, which is Kishida's um, sort of political home patch. But also it is this opportunity for Kishida to push for a nuclear-free world and to have such a strong agenda and such a strong opportunity, suddenly to have almost literally the rug pulled out from under his feet. What must that have been like? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think that will emerge a bit afterwards. I mean, yeah, that is that. a lot of people have been commenting on that because obviously, you know, it, it, it was so much the big event, Zelensky arriving and then having meetings, particularly with people like Modi and, you know, India abstained on the UN resolutions condemning the invasion. So that was interesting. You know, India's been buying Russian oil. So, you know, suddenly it, it was all about Ukraine. Um, and I think that's why the statement, the, the final statement came out early, because, you know, the, the final statement was a bit broader. There was a lot about China, actually. It was quite openly critical of China. It was talking about economic coercion and also, you know, about the concerns about what's going on in the East and South China Sea. So that that message slightly lost um, amidst all the uh, Ukraine um, news. But, you know, I think you know, it's Japan. Everyone likes things planned absolutely 
perfectly. So this will slightly have thrown them. But I think overall an incredible um, publicity coup for President Zelensky, slightly for France as well, because he did turn up on a French military jet um, <laughs> with, with those words emblazoned on the, uh, the outside. So big coup for Macron, I think, as well. So, um, yeah, unexpected, but, but definitely, uh, I think, put a focus on the G7. You know, maybe it, it, it got more attention than it might have done otherwise. And indeed, if you're watching and listening in Beijing, you'd be breathing a sigh of relief, given the fact that the G7 there was, was one of the purposes was to issue a, a big condemnation of China. Yeah, which they've done. And, and China, you know, Beijing has already said they don't like the statement. You know, they could also have written that before the statement even came out. I mean, it's, that's all very much, you know, uh, it, to be expected. No big surprises there. Yeah, maybe they will have been relieved. I think they might have been higher up in the agenda, honestly. You know, you've also got North Korea. That's another huge issue for Japan. So these very specific Asian issues that maybe Japan wanted more focus on, uh, slightly put um, in, in the shade. But I don't know. I feel like um, overall it will be considered a very uh, successful event. Um, and I'm sure you saw the pictures, you know, it, it was it was very so many moments there, you know, from Rishi Sunak in his Hiroshima Carp baseball um, socks to, you know, Zelensky meeting Modi. These are really, really, um, you know, memorable moments. So I think maybe not the socks, but I think, <laughs> you know, I think I think Japan will have considered it a success. It was that lovely coup for Hiroshima because there's this picture that I've just looked at in the last few minutes of Zelensky and, and Sunak meeting at the G7 summit. OK, the chair arrangement could do with a bit of improvement. But but the fact is that beyond the window next to which they are sitting, there is the most exquisite view of water and mountains. I mean, wasn't that just the best backdrop? I kept looking at it as well. So that hotel is in the south of Hiroshima uh, on, a, on, a, on an island. Very, you know, It's just one little road that connects that island to, uh, to the mainland there. And, you know, that view you can see beyond. You know, Hiroshima is on the, it's the inland sea, this famously beautiful part of Japan, incredible blue waters, these small islands. And you can see all these islands popping up in the distance. Um, you could see Etajima in the back there, which is... Uh, a big uh, training facility for um, uh, the Japanese um, SDF. So that, that was quite interesting as well. Not that necessarily anyone would have noticed that, but, uh, you know, it is a very, very pretty part of Japan. Which does a beautiful job for Hiroshima tourism because it, it, you know, the name still sticks for a very, very long time about what happened there in the Second World War. Well, I mean, so true, of course, it, it, you know, that is always going to be part of its history. But I'm always recommending to people who come here, I'm always saying go to Hiroshima. Incredibly interesting also to, to read about the war history and to read about the bomb. You know, that is really, really, that museum is amazing in the middle of the city. But it's just a great city. It's a small, you know, small scale. It's, you know, sadly, because of what happened to it. It's been planned, you know. It was erased the centre, obviously. So it's it's a you know it's it's a nice place to go, and I always say it offers a slightly different perspective on Japan and a, and a, a bit slower pace. Thank you so much for joining us. That was uh, Fiona Wilson, our Tokyo Bureau Chief, joining us on the line from a side street in Ginza. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm joined in the studio by Nina Dos Santos and Yasmin Abdel-Majid. We've got about four or five minutes left of the programme to talk. What is it that you want to raise? I think we have to ask you, what on earth were you doing sitting for 10 hours in a theatre? Well, endurance theatre apparently is a thing. Um, right. <laughs> which I, uh, endurance theatre for me is more likely to happen than endurance running. So so there is that. But um, So the second woman was uh, initially an Australian performance done in the New York, and this was its European debut. Um, and it's the same scene, sort of a couple at a breaking point, sort of done 
a hundred times back to back. And Ruth Wilson, who's a British, a fantastic British actress, did it at the Young Vic. And it was just, I mean, it was quite the moment. Uh, tickets a were... long moment. Yeah, <laughs> quite the long... I mean, the, the standing ovation at the end, because I stayed until 4pm, the standing ovation was nine minutes long. People were... I mean, it's not something that I would have assumed would have been arresting. You know, I thought I was going to go for two hours and then leave. But every single person, most of the people who she was performing with were non-actors, just men who had applied to sort of be, you know, in a scene with Ruth Wilson. Um, So you kind of every scene was a bit of a surprise. Something different would happen. Some of them were nervous. Some of them thought they were all that. Um, And there was some physicality involved as well. So it was just a really fantastic, um, yeah, fantastic performance. It sounds absolutely amazing. But how do you prepare? I mean, getting on a long haul flight is something, but at least you can take snacks. You've got, you know, probably a nice blanket. A loo break. Yeah, a loo loo break. You can go to the loo. (laughs) You can have dinner or other dinners brought to you. I mean, all all these things you can't do that in... Frankly, the idea of endurance theatre—it's the, the name doesn't really sell it for starters, no. does it? <laughs> well, I think it's a—it's definitely a once in a, a lifetime type thing. I'm not sure Ruth is is begging to do this again, but she sort of she got 15 minutes breaks every two hours. But even in the theatre, people were there for 24 hours, so they had brought snacks and they had brought you know food, and people were napping in the breaks and so on. It was a real and people there were people outside in the queue for five and a half hours. The, the woman sitting next to me had been in the queue for five and a half hours just so that. That she could come and see a couple of hours of performance. I wonder whether people are short of something to do. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've never been able to sit through a play for something like uh, 10 hours, let alone 24. Um, but I do think that what you're seeing is a growing wish to become part of a community, mm-hmm. aren't you? I think what, mm-hmm. what this really speaks to is that people want to be together and have a shared experience and have a shared experience that's different to what they've seen before, that's memorable. Um, and I think what I'm really comforted by about this is that it's not on a television set. It's <laughs> yeah. in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that um, because I know we're, later on we're going to talk about AI, hopefully, because it's the, one of the other subjects of the week uh, that this week has been dominated by on the news agenda. But these are real people. These are not robots. There's something comforting I like in that. And I really applaud people like you, Yasmin, who've taken the time 10 hours out of your schedule to do it. Yeah, I think my husband would have preferred that I did something else with those 10 hours. Did um, he come too? No, he didn't. I left him in bed because I, I left the house at four o'clock in the morning. What? to get. See, I know it was madness. I'm not even... I'm not even a morning person. Um, <laughs> but it's commitment, right? Exactly. exactly. And, then, and it's also, you know, it's the story. It's like, I was there, I did this thing. And, and you've seen this rise of immersive theatre and all these sort of experiences, I think, just as you're saying, you know, because people want something to do together. I think I found a buddy for something that I want to go to. Have mm-hmm. you heard of the composer Max Richter? He's done a thing called Sleep. And basically he has a 10-hour piece of music where they, they put out camp beds, camp beds and you'd go along and everybody dozes off and it's that lovely, lovely collective thing. It's really beautiful. You pulled great. a face. No. I know, I know. It sounds really appealing. You and I have young sons, right? I could get a whole night off you could, listening to Max Rooms. Someone play any excuse. And no one's going to, yes, no, no one's going to sort of like be playing with their phones. Very quickly, was anyone playing with their phones while this was on? Because um, this is that moment you just think, during, can you put your phones away? It, 
so people did so because there were some famous actors, you know, Idris Elba, Andrew Scott. They so people took photos while, like, when the person walked through the, they would take photos. But generally, people were off their phones pretty much the whole time. Okay, if it takes ten hours of performance theatre to make people come off their phones, sign me up. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today's program. Many thanks to all my guests uh, and in the studio, Nina dos Santos and Yasmin Abdel Majid. Thank you for joining us as well. Uh, so thanks are needed for Tali Brule, Fiona Wilson, and Nick Manis. Um, the programme was produced by Desiree Bandley and our studio manager was Nora Hall. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns at the same time next week. But enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. <laughs>